Hello, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang, an artist and software engineer. Each episode, I tell you about some of the things I found out about. This week, I have findings about surnameless cultures, the gumbuts, and finally, Lenin's style of discourse and what he thought of state capitalism. On to the findings. I've recently read The Hidden History of Burma, and I'll have a lot to say about that later. But right now I want to talk about something I discovered right at the beginning um, when it talks about names in Burma. The first thing it talks about is that most of the people have no concept of a surname. The majority ethnic group in Burma, and there, there are many ethnic groups in Burma, are called the Myanma people. And they, they don't have a concept of a surname. And they do name most babies with two words, a given name and an honorific, often in indicating gender. The honorific, though, is part of the name, unlike Mr. in the English language. It's not a title, and not everyone has to have it. Further, people can change their names whenever they like, adding and dropping names as they see fit. A lot of people will do this multiple times during the, the course of their lifetimes. The first prime minister of independent Burma, elected in 1948, was named Yu Nu. Yu being an honorific indicating that he was male, and Nu being his given name. Some of the minorities in Burma, though, such as the Kachin, do use surnames. India actually has a similar situation to Burma. A former co-worker of mine, uh, his name was Mahesh, and he told me that there is no concept of a surname in India. There, he's simply known as Mahesh. He does have three names, but none of those are surnames. This was surprising to me because I have known a lot of Indian people, uh, and up to that point, no one had ever told me this. Now, um, this is years ago, so maybe, maybe I misunderstood what he said or misremembered what he said. Or he was just messing with me. But Wikipedia says that mononyms, uh, the use of a single name, um, the mononyms are used in parts of India, especially in the South. However, it appears that the concept of a surname does exist in India, even if uh, it's not universally used. Over in Java, most people from older generations only have one name. Suharto and Sukarno are the names of some former presidents, for example. Of late, family names have become more popular, though there is no obligation to have surnames in India legally. Names in the country of Java are a stark contrast to names in the programming language Java, which are intensely hierarchical and very, very long. And quickly surveying other countries in the general region, Bhutan, Afghanistan, and Tibet also use mononyms. 
If you think about it, surnames don't really uniquely identify anyone. And a lot of people, when given the choice, don't actually want to be connected to their family or a particular side of their family anyway. I actually have a friend who, when it came time to decide uh, what to name uh, his kid, he and his wife decided they didn't really want to use either of their last names because they weren't that into him. They actually didn't have any problems with their families that I know of, but they just decided to pick an entirely different uh, surname and uh, just give it to him because it sounded good. Gumbuts is a Hungarian word, and it's spelled in a way that if you are just an English speaker with no knowledge of Hungarian, uh, looks like it would be Gambok because it's spelled G-O with an umlaut, M, B, another O with an umlaut, C. But it's pronounced Gumbuts. And it is a 3D shape. It's sort of like those roly-poly toys that pop up when you push them down. It's defined as having one stable and one unstable point of equilibrium. That is, there is one point at which it will stand on a flat surface in a stable way, um, even if you kind of plant it uh, sort of, you know, a little bit off the point, it will uh, kind of get back to that point and stand up. And then there's one point at which it would stand uh, if you place it perfectly, but planting it a tiny bit away from that perfect point will make it fall. That's the unstable point of equilibrium. Further, the gumbuts must be homogeneous. That's why a roly-poly toy can't actually be a gumbuts, because they're usually inflated, and I think a lot of times they have more weight at the bottom and are denser there. Finally, gumbuts must be convex, because it's easy to make a stable point just by having a flat side. It turns out to be incredibly hard to make such a thing. A Russian mathematician posed the question uh, about whether or not you could make one of these things in 1995. It was solved in 2006 by a Hungarian team, Gabor Demokos and Peter Marconi. The word gumbuts previously referred to a pig's stomach stuffed with seasoned pork. That is to say, stuffed by people after the pig was killed. It's not referring to a pig that ate lots of seasoned pork. As for just how hard it is to make a gumbuts, uh, slight mistakes will mean that it won't have one stable point and one unstable point. Very few of them have been manufactured. In fact, so few have been manufactured, um, they have numbers, and it is known who most of the owners of the existing gumbuts are. It's not unlike the Rings of Power in The Lord of the Rings, where... Um, you know, those versed in ring lore would know, like, oh, you know, Gandalf has, you know, Narya, the Ring of Fire, and, you know, uh, Thrain, son of Thror, had one of the, the seven rings for the dwarf lords, etc. 
There's a section that lists all of this stuff in the Wikipedia article that taught me about the gumbutts. While searching for something else, I ended up at an essay that was written by Vladimir Lenin, and he wrote it for Pravda in 1918. It's called, quote, left wing, end quote, childishness. Uh, it, yeah, the quotes are in the title. Two things struck me about this essay. First, Lenin kind of reads as just another internet guy, despite preceding the internet by about 80 years. He's opinionated and he's spicy. His essay is filled with put-downs and ad hominem. Just title, the title alone contains two invectives. First, he irony quotes left-wing to call to doubt whether the subject of his essay, the left communists, are really left-wing. Then, of course, he just calls them childish instead of sticking to what he thinks is wrong with their ideas. Here's some of the things he says in the actual essay. Are left communists, however, who are also fond of calling themselves proletarian communists because there is very little that is proletarian about them and very much that is petty bourgeois are incapable of giving thought to the balance of forces, to calculating it. This basically translates to the left communists aren't down with the people and they are dumb. Speaking of the petty bourgeois, Lenin was the son of the director of public schools of a province, not unlike a punk rocker whose dad is an executive. And he's got some of that Twitter-style outrage going on in this passage. The left intellectual striplings, however, with the magnificence of a self-infatuated narcissist, profoundly declare that the masses have become firmly imbued with an inactive peace mentality. Was I not right when I said at the party congress that the paper or journal of the lefts ought to have been called not communist but schlischik? More like slopchik, am I right? Slopchik is a term for a Polish nobleman. Lenin does not have much patience for nuance either, as he expresses in this passage. The first thing that strikes one is the abundance of illusions, hints and evasions with regard to the old question of whether it was right to conclude the Brest Treaty. The lefts dare not put the question in a straightforward manner. They flounder about in a comical fashion, pile argument on argument, fish for reasons, plead that, on the one hand, it may be so, but, on the other hand, it may not, their thoughts wander over all and sundry subjects, they try all the time not to see that they are defeating themselves. To be fair, I didn't get to read the left communist article that Lenin's talking about. But to me, it sounds like they're just considering multiple angles which is an important intellectual exercise. I can, however, see why Lenin's branch of the Bolsheviks was more successful than the left communists, which is the branch he's criticizing here. Jeffrey Tubin wrote a book about why the Mueller report did nothing to Trump. I haven't read it, but I did see this quote from it in a review, which rings pretty true. Simplicity rarely loses to complexity in battles in the public square. And I think Lenin might do well on social media today because of this uh, fact of human perception. I do wonder though, if he took on this scornful, screed-like tone because he was speaking from a position of power. 
1918 and 1919, the other non-Bolshevik socialist parties were expelled from Russia, and the Politburo, or Politburo, I think, was established. Lenin was in charge of the Politburo and all of Soviet Russia. His essay was published in Pravda, the official state newspaper of Russia. It was the largest media platform available. And there on that platform, he let loose with all of this, you're losers and you're going to fail talk. Here's a bit more of that. The flaunting of high-sounding phrases is characteristic of the declassed petty bourgeois intellectuals. The organized proletarian communists will certainly punish this habit with nothing less than derision and expulsion from all responsible posts. But there is substance mixed in with the sick burns in this essay. The above sentences are followed by Lenin backing up his decision to assign the aforementioned Treaty of Brest. The essay is a response to two main criticisms of him from the left communists. The first is his decision to sign that treaty and make peace with Germans and Austro-Hungarians in World War I. About this, he says, The people must be told the bitter truth simply, clearly and in a straightforward manner. It is possible, and even probable, that the war party will again get the upper hand in Germany, that is, an offensive against us will commence at once, and that Germany together with Japan, by official agreement or by tacit understanding, will partition and strangle us. Our tactics, if we do not want to listen to the ranters, must be to wait, procrastinate, avoid battle and retreat. If we shake off the ranters and brace ourselves by creating genuinely iron, genuinely proletarian, genuinely communist discipline, we shall have a good chance of gaining many months. And then by retreating even, if the worst comes to the worst, to the Urals, we shall make it easier for our ally, the international proletariat, to come to our aid, to catch up, to use the language of sport, the distance between the beginning of revolutionary outbreaks and revolution. So, he is right about Germany and Japan. That is what happened later in World War II. And I'm guessing that the Red Army was not at its strongest, given that it was fighting the Russian Civil War, which uh, Lenin never mentions in his essay. This sounds like cautious realism on Lenin's part. There is something really self-preserving about that last part about retreating to the Urals, however. And the part about the international proletariat rescuing them if the Germans took Moscow seems uh, very fantastical. I can see, though, um, why Lenin's decision was universally unpopular in Russia. Here's what Wikipedia says about the terms of that treaty. On 3 March, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed. It resulted in massive territorial losses for Russia, with 26% of the former empire's population, 37% of its agricultural harvest area, 28% of its industry, 26% of its railway tracks, and three quarters of its coal and iron deposits being transferred to German control. That is a lot. Uh, if he had just waited until the end of 1918, that's when the Germans collapsed. That said, after the collapse, the treaty was annulled, but they did lose some things permanently. Uh, they lost Poland, and they lost the Baltic states, which used that opportunity to become independent nations. The other uh, s substantive bit in uh, Lenin's essay 
was a counter to the left communist criticism of his enacting of state capitalism. State capitalism is a system in which for-profit companies are owned and controlled by the state. The workers do not control the means of production here. This I was completely ignorant about. I know that the Soviet Union had some form of this, but I didn't know that things started this way. So Lenin gives two reasons for his decision. The first is that he believed that state capitalism was, an un was a necessary step in the transition to true socialism. And of course, if you don't know this, you're dumb, as he says here. From whatever side we approach the question, only one conclusion can be drawn. The argument of the left communists about the state capitalism, which is alleged to be threatening us, is an utter mistake in economics and is evident proof that they are complete slaves of petty bourgeois ideology. His other reason for enacting state capitalism sounds practical. Only those are worthy of the name of communists who understand that it is impossible to create or introduce socialism without learning from the organizers of the trusts. For socialism is not a figment of the imagination, but the assimilation and application by the proletarian vanguard, which has seized power, of what has been created by the trusts. We, the party of the proletariat, have no other way of acquiring the ability to organize large-scale production on trust lines, as trusts are organized, except by acquiring it from first-class capitalist experts. Institutional knowledge is indeed important, and you can't get it by ripping down the institutions and starting new ones from scratch. If it seemed like he was arguing against that, and it makes sense to, you know, preserve institutions. I did wonder if that's actually what the left communists were arguing for, though. I looked it up, and according to Wikipedia, the left communists wanted each factory to be controlled by its workers. That makes sense to me because that's that's what socialism is, right? That's uh, workers control the means of production. To me, it seems like you could still learn from the trusts, as Lenin calls them, um, by which he means like these companies, uh, even if you change the pay structure so that all of the money goes to the workers. Uh, but without you know, details about uh, what the left communists want. I don't know what else uh, I can say meaningfully. I think Lenin may have possibly mistrusted the workers, though. Elsewhere in the essay, he says, uh, quote, Finally, we have neither a high degree of culture nor the habit of compromise. That's the end of the quote. And he's talking about the people in Russia. Back in 1902, he wrote a pamphlet called What is to be Done. It's about the need for an intellectual vanguard to lead the proletariat, which doesn't have the ability to uh, understand Marxism on its own, according to him. He points out that Marx and Engels themselves were from the bourgeois class, so a belief in equality may not be in his, at his core. Most people who come to immense power eventually become solely interested in maintaining that power. But I think Lenin is interesting in that he didn't really trust the proletariat with power long before he himself came to power. I mentioned a few minutes ago that there are two things that I found striking about the essay. The first being the similarity to uh, social media discourse. The second is that Lenin 
was a fan of state capitalism, even if he said he enacted it as a transitional step. I always imagined that he pushed for what the left communists were actually interested in, workers controlling the means of production, but that he died before he could do it, and then Stalin started state capitalism. Uh, but that turns out not to be the case at all, uh, even though Lenin, I guess, in comparison to Stalin, was was the more idealistic uh, of the two. Uh, he, he wasn't apparently that pure, or as pure as I thought, um, with regards to pursuing socialism. As I talked about back in uh, episode three of this podcast, state capitalism is how China runs today in 2020. They have terrible inequality, but I'm not sure this would bother Lenin. Maybe he would have wanted the same outcome for the Soviet Union, which is, um, it is, you know, having a powerful state that is thought of as socialist in some regard, and maybe has a lot of inequality, but is immensely powerful. And that's all the findings I have for this episode. Do you have any findings you want to share? Do you have any comments that you want to make? If so, email smallfindings at fastmail.com. That's S-M-A-L-L-F-I-N-D-I-N-G-S at F-A-S-T-M-A-I-L dot com. See you next episode. <laughs>